I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to episode 22 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Today we have a very special guest, Kenneth Lonergan, the American playwright and filmmaker. Wow. We'll be talking to, yeah, I know, <laughs> we'll be talking to him about his twin careers in Hollywood and on the New York stage, and in particular about his 1999 play, The Waverly Gallery, uh, which yeah, you know, which is now being performed on Broadway in a very important arrival, directed by Lila Neugebauer, who was our guest a year or so ago, and featuring a remarkable cast led by none other than Elaine May. Tony, 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 Tony. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) We'll also answer an interesting question from one of our listeners a bit later in the podcast. But first, though, we're going we're gonna to go in a completely different direction, and we're going to spend a few minutes chatting about a, a new musical uh, that may or may not end up being a commercial flop. We may soon see it on the, uh, the wall of shame at Joe Allen. The restaurant, Joe. <laughs> the, the listeners who are not aware. Where, right, yeah. where uh, flops hang forever. Yes, yeah, so they have a kind of like section dedicated to uh, memorable flops. And uh, actually, uh, theater people are very fond of flops. And there's a, ro- a romance of we, the flop. We, we should do a podcast about flops one day. Let's, let's say that one for a little. It'll be fun. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and there's definitely a lot of material. We tend to do that a lot, actually. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, so this show has gotten some of the worst reviews that I think any of us can remember uh, reading or writing uh, in recent years. Mm. Yeah. We're talking, of course, about King Kong the Australian musical that is nominally based on the famous 1933 movie about a giant gorilla who falls in love with a New York showgirl. I I don't think you actually reviewed it, Elizabeth, but Peter and I both gave it the gas. Uh, (laughs) Literally, in my case, I actually said in my Wall Street Journal (laughs) review that King Kong made me feel as though I were fighting off an overwhelmingly powerful anesthetic. (laughs) If it got any good reviews, I can't remember reading them, and yet it's still running on Broadway a week later. So let's start there. Uh, Do either of you think that King Kong will actually manage to stay open after being universally panned? And if so, why? Let's start with you, Peter. Well, uh, that's a great question. I think that it's going to entirely depend on the uh, on two factors. One of them being uh, how uh, astute or not the producers of this show, this thirty-five million dollar musical, are, and of course whether they can rope in enough unsuspecting tourists, maybe people who who English isn't even a third language for, and they will you know just gawk for uh, for the thirty minutes you get to see this giant ape on the stage. And I described it as, you know, the appeal was, you know, if if you're uh, in the mood to pay more than 150 bucks to see the best Thanksgiving Day Parade float ever, uh, <laughs> this is the show for you. Because that's essentially what it is. It may be, to in my mind, you know, there's always a bit of P.T. Barnum on, broad, sure. on Broadway. Yeah. And this, the irony of this show is that it trades on the idea of the horrors of uh, a P.T. Barnum-like showman who who, who tra- traps and imprisons this this wonderfully uh, sentient ape, and the fact of the matter is that the show itself is a complete uh, uh, using of this this character to sell tickets, and the only possible reason that somebody would go would be to see this mechan- the, the wonders of this mechanical thing on stage. That's, that's, new, that all- that's new frontiers in working both sides of the street, I would say. Indeed. So, I mean, my answer to that is, if uh, you know, this will be an interesting test of how far the, uh, the, the gap is between the critical consensus and the tastes of the average person willing to spend a fortune for a Broadway show. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think the last time a very expensive musical uh, with a fraught uh, history like the making of history, because that King Kong has been through so many changes. Apparently, it's completely different from the version that opened in Australia a few right. years ago. Yes. There's, I mean, it's It's crazy. had other directors and writers attached. So, so unfortunately, I think the, the, the one that it closely resembles in many, many, many ways is Spider-Man of Turn course. of the Dark, right. yes. which 
got similarly derisive reviews uh, and did not last. So I don't think it's enough to have a kind of brand property to last at this point. But um, it, to my mind, the producers made a really huge mistake because, um, well, they made many, but there's a key one, a conceptual one, um, which is that this does not need to be a musical. And there is a model for property right now, Broadway, that's doing really well without being a musical. And they actually are written by the same person, mm. Jack Thorne, and that's the Harry Potter show. Interesting. This King Kong did not need to be a musical. You take out entirely all the songs, which are just completely banal anyway. Right, right. You make it a now and a half show. You focus on, is it a gorilla, an ape? I don't know. Uh, opinions vary. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> on the, the beast. Um, and then I think you have a fighting chance. Mm. Yes, I was very, str I mean, I obviously panned the show to, through the middle of next week and back again. But like most of the reviewers, I was impressed with the puppetry. Uh, it is an extremely expressive piece of work, and it's not, it, it's not an old-fashioned puppet either. It's one of those really big puppets that is manipulated mm -hmm. in full view of the audience in the manner of, uh, of War Horse. Uh, and it's done with real imagination, and you, you actually feel a connection with this large gorilla up there. The trouble is that everything else in the show is preposterous. And to my mind, actually, King Kong's entrance is absolutely amazing. It's one of the best scenes that I've seen this year. I'm completely serious about this. When yeah. you first, actually, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a great oh, reveal. Oh, yeah, like we haven't spoiled it I know, already. Right? But in case you happen to go, it's a great reveal. And the two models, yes, you're absolutely right. It's Harry Potter and War Horse. Neither of which is a musical. Right. I have no idea what they got it into their heads to make this a musical. It is completely crazy. Of course, I had this work that would say, you know, of course it was. It had to be a musical, but no, it doesn't. I mean, and they the had time to not make it a musical. The assumption is that musicals are the only thing that is an absolutely reliable sell. I mean, Harry Potter is a special case because it's Harry Potter. Right. It's the ultimate uh, modern day franchise. King Kong is a 1933 movie that still has high name recognition. Everybody's either seen or heard of it. Uh, but is that enough in and of itself to get people into the house? Uh, the first week it was. The first week grosses were 95%, which is really pretty respectable for a starless show. Uh, are they going to hold? I haven't seen any numbers yet that come from after the reviews hit. And I, I'm very curious. I, I, whichever one of you said this was a test case, right on the money. It's really going to teach us something about what sells on Broadway, who does it sell to, how do you sell it, and what maybe even what is the future of Broadway going to be like in this age of franchise and commodity theater? I, I think for me to listen is that even on Broadway you can be crap only up to a point. Hmm. Because think of War Horse for me is a great example because that's there were there were no names. There was not a Nobody, I mean, at least in the U.S., the people didn't know the the book. Mm. It was based on just pure storytelling and, and the puppets, and it can be done. Yeah, but I, I have to say now that in, in retrospect, I almost regret my Spider-Man pan. Because, <laughs> oh, no. Because at least there was sort of a, an, an ambition, uh, an artful ambition to that piece. It wasn't really just trying to, you know, replicate the the skill set of movie making to uh, to dazzle you and distract mm -hmm. you. I mean, this piece doesn't even do that. It's just, you know, it's just a a, a satisfying of a very primal need to see a a living a, a a form an organic form recreated in a in a magically uh, uh, compelling way, but that's it. It's that's theme park. That is not theater. So even if we you know we talk about the you know the the admission price question and like you know how many people will they snare the way we do you know talk about like you know hawking tickets at a midway you know that is not what theater is supposed to be so i think it bodes really terribly for broadway if there is a place for this kind of entertainment because it just replaces theater i don't think it really extends comments on um transforms theater in any uh way no i don't see an upside to the success of this show uh and <clears throat> but i honestly it, for me it's a coin toss whether it's going to stay open or not i really don't know 
I mean, I, I, I do go with Barnum, or, or actually with H.L. Mencken, who, who said, apropos of him, you know, nobody ever went broke underestimating, overestimating the taste. Of uh, sure. Help of me. How did he, what did he actually right. say? Nobody uh, ever went remember. broke underestimating the taste of the American public. Uh, and uh, we're going to find out. We're going to find out very shortly, uh, within a I'm, couple I'm of weeks. I'm actually, I think we could reconvene, and I, uh, I'm pretty sure this will not make it to the Tonys. This hmm. is, I'm saying it right now. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know the I, I don't know what the, the economies are for the, of scale are for this production. I don't know what they've um, how much the running costs are. It looks, uh, you know, forgive me, enormous. The the, the cost <laughs> of this thing. Uh, it's a very large cast uh, that and at least, you know, there are like at least 10 puppet operators, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, I, it's a lot of people. The counts seem to vary by re reviewer. Uh, I think I counted 10 in the program. Somebody else came up with 12. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people up there, that's for sure. So, I mean, I don't, you know, and what the, 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 the documents that, that, uh, that a general manager uh, typed out, uh, you know, explaining, I guess, the, you know, whatever the, how many weeks they would have to run before they broke even uh, at, at full, it would probably be at full capacity for several years. I mean, $35 million no. is at plus, what we have to assume is, you know, got to be a million dollars a week in, in operating costs, yeah. running costs. You have to it's surpass that you. to start paying down any amount of the investment. So I mm -hmm. just don't. I, I I think it's a it's a it's a long 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 shot, uh, except if you can. I think you know the international market, and that apparently is growing on Broadway. Someone the other day, a, a leading uh, um, uh, producer on Broadway told me it's up to 75% of the what? audience now, the tourists. This 75%? Is, yeah, it's up to seven. That's what I would, this is what this person who, who, who produces several shows a year on Broadway, and it wasn't Scott Rudin, uh, told <laughs> me. Um, and uh, so that, ex that number suggests to me that there is that's what they're aiming for and that's why it but, got here but by the way i remember once uh you know review writing something about a show appealing to tourists and i got several really irate letters from people who say they love visiting new york and so are tourists and don't see <laughs> don't go see bad shows and they were really tired of the cliche of the uh tourists who will go see anything so and just putting it out there i thought it was an in, i mean i really had that and i felt like okay well i mean point I, taken i think it's going to also be an interesting test is not only for the show but for us in the sense that if if you know if we're are we not are we not tuning into the other sort of narrative uh, uh, contexts that people will uh, uh, that will sustain a show, or the lack of them that will sustain a show, and we are always looking for those elements. You know, the traditions that that the, in the conventions, if you will, that that are even are sort of you know are innovated upon uh, by by different people. Your your insist on your insistence on storytelling and quality <laughs> are. Well, I'm, look. I'm so backward. I'm so, They're so antediluvian. Somebody, yeah. <laughs> somebody said on Twitter. I think it may have been uh, Jason Zinneman of the Times that uh, now that he has kids, his perspective on what he sees on Broadway has changed, mm. and he he could imagine this show's attracting a, a children's audience. And I don't think that that's a crazy assumption. Uh, you know, a big rubber monkey that moves around and does cool stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, may, maybe King Kong is and has always been a very expensive kids show. Uh, that's not, so, I don't have children. Uh, that's not something I have any kind of perspective on. Uh, producers are business people. They don't usually do things out of wishful thinking. They may be, <laughs> they may be wrong, but they're, they're, there's a nub of realism in the way that they they think through these things. So somebody who is not obviously crazy thought that they could make some money off King Kong. And uh, well, it's 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 a but it's also a dark piece. It's not yeah. you know it's uh, not for little kids. I would say I think it would scare the hell well, out of little kids. You know kids. the weird thing about this show actually is that that kind of new twist they put on Andero, who's the the right. the lead human. Yes, I the would say, almost virtually the only they, human. They've turned her into this plucky Disney. Right? I really hated that. Yeah. And then she gets the final song, mm -hmm. which is all about her journey. And I wanted to scream, it's not about you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that song really just annoyed the 
hell out yeah. of me. Yeah, it's, it's just it's oh a God. it's a new age King Kong with strong Disney elements. The Instagram King Kong. Yes. Oh. Well, enough enough yeah. with the monkey business. Uh, it is time to welcome our guest. I doubt that any of our listeners need to be told much about Kenneth Lonergan. Two of his plays have run on Broadway in 2018, first Lobby Hero and now The Waverly Gallery. He is the author of four other full-length plays, one of which, This Is Our Youth, also made it to Broadway back in 2014, 18 years after its off-Broadway premiere. In addition, he is the writer and director of three of the most admired American films of the 21st century, You Can Count on Me, Margaret, and most recently, Manchester by the Sea, which won two Oscars, one of them for the Best Original Screenplay of 2016. Kenneth Lonergan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by asking a question that few people are as well equipped as you are to answer. Exactly what is involved in moving from stage to screen and back again? How different are the challenges that are presented to you by these two media? It's, they're pretty different. I mean, there's a lot of levels. There's a professional level, a technical level, and a creative level. So depending on which one you want to address, they're all, they're all I think the creative level in a way is the least, there's the least difference. Um, the, 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 I think the process of writing a play and of writing a screenplay aren't, aren't that different. Hmm. Um, uh, really? Well, they are in, a, in, in kind of superficial ways. The, there are many more scenes in a screenplay. You're thinking a lot more about what's happening visually in a screenplay, especially if you have directed or are going to direct, direct the movie. Um, but you're still basically dealing with the same elements, which is human beings moving through a narrative of some kind. Um, and so even though the, the ways that, that, uh, that you tell the story are, are quite different, you still need to, I hate to put it this way, but you just need to check off many of the same boxes. And I guess if you want a very broad strokes, you still need to raise money and get someone to produce your plays and movies. But uh, it does seem like being on a movie set and dealing with all the technical uh, things you need to deal with for a film are, are, are much more elaborate and, and different from, from what you have to deal with in the theater, although neither one of them is, is exactly teensy. Well, in that case, why did why did you and do you want to make films? What what was it that caused you to say, oh, I, I have this story I want to tell, and I want to tell it as a film, and I want to direct it too, and then you end up with you can count on me. Well, once you're once once it's no longer on the script and it's into the production, then you do get into very very different worlds. You have a you know the, there's hundreds and hundreds of of. Uh, Things that need to happen for a, for a film to come together, and uh, with a the theater, it's it's there. There are fewer. Um, obviously, you know, movies and plays are, are obviously very different once they're once they're finished. I mean, I don't want to overemphasize too much that it's the same. I just meant literally. Just writing the story mm. is not always involved the same. Uh, very different challenges. You have characters you want to be alive and lively. You need to put them into situations where there's conflict. You're trying to follow some kind of thread that you might not be completely aware of yourself. There, of course, once you get into like. Is it a movie or is it a play? There are tremendous differences of, or otherwise you wouldn't need both. Does every uh, you, do your plays or movies ever start as the opposite? In other words, they are, you you distinctly have written for the screen and for the stage. Uh, they're very they seem like uh, very uh, 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 intentionally created for those mediums. But do they ever start in like as a screenplay that becomes a, um, a piece of theater or vice versa? Not. So far, uh, except for the except for many of the things that I've written, full-length pieces started out as very short scenes, uh, 12, 15-page scenes, and um, Lobby Hero started out as a short scene. So did You Can Count on Me. Hmm. Uh, Margaret was always Mar there. Are elements in Margaret that started out as a short, shorter pieces. Um, so in that sense, yes. But otherwise, once the, for a whole full-length piece, I've never imagined one as a theater piece and then ended up turning into a movie or vice versa. Hmm. Could you imagine making one of your plays into a film? Yeah, I have imagined it often. I, I'd like to actually make all my plays into films. There's something uh, that... Uh, uh, there, there are some technical difficulties, particularly for some of the plays, that I'm not sure how to do it. Uh, and then the other difficulty for all of them is that I've, having worked on them for so long to write them and produce them and see them exist as plays, it's not always, it doesn't always feel like a, 
uh, a fresh challenge or a fresh endeavor to to go back and take the time it takes to write something as a screenplay and and get it filmed and 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 I would probably want to direct them myself uh, re direct any play mm. that became a movie and that's it's just a lot to uh, put your time into if you're trying to do new things. I, I, I have a question in terms of the process. Uh, uh, Todd Solons is an experienced filmmaker, recently made a playwriting and directing debut, so he chose to write a play and also direct it. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that one of the things that really made him nervous as during the process was, he said when he, he, said when he was making a film, he, he felt that he had a safety net in the editing room. Mm -hmm. And he said what made him nervous about theater was that sense that once it's out, that's it. But that the rehearsal process was a little similar to the editing room in a way. Did you feel that some of the tweaking happens at the same stage? Yes, I think that you know one thing about the rehearsal. Yeah, but in a way, they're, 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 they're yes and no. I mean, they're sort of inverse. They're sort of converted to each other, or they're opposites. Uh -huh. they, uh, when you're in the rehearsal, you're trying to you do a lot of tweaking, but it's all with a mind towards letting it all go and letting mm. the, pointing the cast in a different direction. You know, whether I'm directing it myself or I'm just sitting there as mm -hmm. a participating playwright, you're. You're, you're, you're kind of developing a, a group vocabulary for what the story is and how the scenes play out and what the play is and what its basic outlines are and then you go away and you don't want to clamp the actors down because you're not getting what you need out of them that way. I'd say, and with a film, film editing, you are, you are putting the final, you're making the final decisions about how it's going to be forever. So you never do that with a play. It, it's, it, you couldn't do it even if you tried. Do, do, do you... The, the last three, uh, the Broadway productions were all, well, revivals. I mean, the mm -hmm. plays had been done before. Um, did you go back to the scripts? No, but no? hardly at all. I, I might have changed a couple of lines here or there that had always bothered me, but nothing more than that. Ken, Kenny, I always feel with your plays and movies, the similar sensation I always have is that I feel like I, I'm inter... I'm, Getting an interregnum, uh, some sense that this is happening right now to these people, but that they have a past and a future. I, I feel like I'm dropped in on people that stay with me um, after I've seen them for for years, and also that I start imagining what happened prior to what happened to them in your, your work, and it made me wonder about living with these characters and how much they. How much of a, a how much of a part of you do you have to give over to them when you're writing? Do they become um, constant presences in your consciousness? Can you sh do, uh, do they just exist as lines to be um, addressed on a page and transitions to be made? You know how does that organically um, work in your in, into the in, into your life? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, you know, they, as much as possible, they become full people that I think of the way I think about a, a real person. And I mean, one funny thing is that you don't need to, y your work would probably be better if you did, but you don't need to create a full, you know, daily biography of your characters in order to get them functioning in a, in a, in a lively and interesting way in the story. But you, you, but you need as, just as much as, as is required. So, and sometimes it all comes to, in a way that's a bit mysterious, and other times you have to slowly build some from the outside in, some from the inside out. Occasionally, if I think a character's too thin, I might go and deliberately write some sort of biography for, hmm. for him or her. Hmm. That's not very often the case, but at, at some point, I need to know everything pertinent to the story that we're seeing um i need to you know i need to know how long it's been since the two characters have seen each other mm. i need to know if the character has an offstage relationship that's important i need to know everything that about that that would feed the behavior inside the scenes that we're seeing um you know my a movie manchester there was a, a big part of the story was the fact that the main character lived away from his hometown and had been there for a while and it would it's been very difficult to write those scenes without having really I know exactly how long he's been away I know why he decided to go where he went I know you know pretty much what the 
what that whole practical journey was, and that really helps. And then I, the more I can know about his background, the better, because his background feeds into the story a lot. There are other characters I've written where I, they're just as alive to me as that character is, but I don't know as much because I didn't need to know as much mm. in order to make them come alive mm. in the scene. I gather that we all do that the Waverly Gallery is in in significant part autobiographical. It's drawing on real life experience. Uh, is that in fact true? And if so, how does that change the process that you're talking about? It is true, and it and it uh, in in this particular case, it was help. It's helpful because you have all the biographical and family history information there to draw on if you if you're willing to draw on it or if you're able to draw on it, and so. I know as much about those characters as I do about the people that that, that they're modeled on, um, and uh, so that you know, I if you if it's if it, if it exists in real life, you don't have to invent as much. So it's in some ways it's a little less work uh, to have to use real life material. Usually you do it in combination with with things that you've made up and invented, or you combine people to make a composite character. And there's always elements of all that in anything you do but uh that particular material is much closer to my literal experience than anything else i've ever done do, does doing it a, a, again with a different cast years after it, these plays first um happened especially with Rave, waverly gallery since you knew these people mm. do they become less known to you as time goes on can do they free up from those ideas of you who you had of them and do they do they have lives of their own apart from your own experience of those uh, people in memory those particular characters yeah. or, or all of them or? especially in Waverly Gallery um, that's an interesting question I don't know uh, I think probably not so much I think there there are things you notice about anything you've worked on in the past that 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 you didn't notice at first, and that comes through the working with actors, working with new actors, and also just things you notice as you look back. Um, uh, but for the most part, I'd say that the the characters don't seem to me to change as much as you might think hmm. over time. When I look back at characters I wrote 20 years ago, they seem about the same to me now as they did then. Um, there might be other things about the work that I have a different opinion about, um, particularly problems that you fuss over seem to loom less large later on. Mm. You get involved in very minute problems that, that can kind of take up a lot of energy and, and work, but, but don't, in fact, aren't, aren't, quite as, uh, um, aren't quite as important as they seemed at the time. That's just a part of the process of going in and working on something and stepping back and going in and stepping back. And we should probably you know, just say for people who haven't seen the play or don't know Waverly Gallery, which is right. the play that's on right now on Broadway with um, with Elaine May and Michael Sarah and uh, um, Lucas Hedges, among others, uh, Joan Allen, is really essentially a memory play about your grandmother uh, and the deterioration that you witnessed in her that we all ex have experienced with some loved one who's aged mm -hmm. um, and, and, and within the context of this rich story about New York City and living in New York City um, and the pressures that sort of are brought to bear on everyone in the story based on what happens and Elaine May giving this brilliant performance at the center of it all. Yeah. Um, uh, probably helpful to people know that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Probably. You know, I, it's... <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, dementia wasn't invented uh, last year, but I, people talk about it more now than they did 20 years ago. They're they're more, I think, more open about it. I, probably because of the aging of the of the baby boomers, and more people are coming to grips with the uh, uh, the problem of caregiving. And I wonder if if you feel that the play is landing differently now with audiences than it did when it was first seen off Broadway all those years ago. Uh, probably is in some ways. I just because, yeah, because the public discussion about about aging and and dementia, as you say, has changed. Um, I don't think Alzheimer's was a was the main word that was used for people with with dementia advanced dementia back in when the play was first came out it was just about to be but and I don't even know that my grandmother or that the character of the play has Alzheimer's strictly she mm. might have some kind of vascular dementia it's, it was never it's not diagnosed and never was diagnosed in real life but yeah I do th I think you're right there's a lot of more public discussion about it it's a it's a it's a much 
more frequently identified disease than it was uh, 20 years ago, even though obviously it's not, it, it, there's not more of it now than there ever was before that we, that we know of. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that the play has been revived at this point? I, I'm curious as to how this time around the Waverly Gallery got to Broadway. It's very unusual for a playwright like you who is, a, who is quite well known, but whose work had simply not been done on Broadway. And then suddenly you're all over the place. How did it happen this time around? I, I really couldn't say. I mean, I wanted to do. I've, I've wanted to do a revival of it for many years. Um, I've discussed doing revivals of it f over over the years. Uh, it that's a sort of a confluence of, uh, you know, it, one thing is that it's very dependent on getting a really unusually good actress to play the lead role. It's a very difficult part. It's a, it's a very good part, and uh, it's not such an easy part to cast or play. So mm. we have Elaine May in it, and you can't do any better than that. We had Eileen Heckert did it the first time, who was also someone who, you know, can't be topped. Mm. Maybe she can be equaled in another on another track, but mm. she was just brilliant as well. So that's one thing, is finding a, a star, to put it crudely, who's going to inhabit the role uh, the way you want it inhabited. The other is just where you are professionally. I don't think my work could have been put on Broadway so easily 10 years ago or 20 years ago hmm. without a huge movie star uh, in it. Um, but, I, I, you know, and, you know, I got a lot of uh, my my professional profile went up last year because of Manchester by the Sea was so well distributed and, and pretty well received and uh, so that that just helps it makes you a safer bet to mm. investing um, but I, I'm, I hope it's because the play is so great and people wanted to see it again. <laughs> but you never know how we much of a so. factor that well, is. I, I'm actually, I mean, I'm interested in your relationship with, with actors uh, because you tend not to direct your plays. You direct your screenplays, but you tend not to direct, I guess that's a two-part thing. Why do you tend not to direct your plays? And number two, the relationship with actors, I remember there were jokes around how Mar Mark Ruffalo, who you worked with mm -hmm. a lot, was that the, the Kenneth Lonergan whisperer, and now <laughs> it seems to be Michael Cera, who has been in all three of the Broadway productions of your plays. Um, well, you know, uh, let's see. Uh, I, I mean, you do like to work with the same actors because they're so good. You want to work with them, and um, uh, if you have a good working relationship, then it's you know that that you can do more. So that's just a that seems to me to be a pretty basic uh, pretty just a pretty basic situation that you want to that you want to maintain and get the most out of uh, and then also I think that uh, you know and as you do more stuff you get more people involved I don't know why Michael's done all three plays he's, <laughs> he's just great and he wanted to be in them and he was available a lot of this is a lot of it's available you know it's a combination of who you want in the play who wants to be in the play who's available and who is castable uh, in, in the more crass commercial sense, you know, who who will who is going to uh, who's going to sell tickets, or who do people think is going to sell tickets? Because it's not always the same thing. Right. Um, that's the part that I don't have to worry about as much because it's not my end of the of the production. It's uh, but I. Um, so there's that, and then as far as directing goes, you don't need to direct your own play in order for it to come out more or less the way you would like it to. There, you know, the theater. Is a great, much more respectful of the written material than 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 the than movies are, which is zero. So you couldn't be less <laughs> respectful of written material than 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 the movies are. Um, and if you want, if you're a writer and you want your work to come to be uh, brought to life in the production in some way that resembles what you wrote, and you're and you want it to that to happen in film, you have to direct the film yourself, or you're just relying on luck and noblesse oblige from the people who control the film. Um, I suppose you could become a producer uh, and try to exercise some creative control that way, and that's not a, that's not a bad thing to do either, but I uh, was interested in, also I wanted to learn how to be a director. I have directed two of my plays, um, which I thought went very well, um, but it's a, you know, it's a more, for me, it's a, there's a managerial part of directing a play that's greater than the managerial part of directing a film. Film is such a huge right. endeavor yeah. that you don't actually make the film. The first assistant director makes the film. The line producer makes the film. You you make all the you can if you're that kind of person. You learn how to do all those things. But I, I'm that's not my strong suit. So and in a the theater, it's a smaller thing. So you kind of you have to if you're the director, you're a bit more in charge of the whole process physically than 
you have lots of help, but you're, you're, you're at the top of the pyramid creatively and also uh, uh, administratively. And that, that's, a, those are, that's a different skill set. Well, that, that leads me to ask, how present were you at rehearsals for the Waverly Gallery? And what were you doing when you were there? Well, the first time I do a play, I want to be there as much as possible because if it's never been done before, it matters to me a great deal how it turns out. And it's not that it matters less, but having you know having once gotten a production that I'm very, very happy with, I, I, I'm later on often more willing and interested to see what happens if I'm not around so much. Um, but having said that, this time I was around quite a bit. Um, uh, you know, we have this really, really wonderful director, Lila Neugebauer, and uh, this amazing cast. So I didn't feel exactly like I needed to be there for damage control, which sometimes is the case. But uh, <laughs> but more, oh. more because I just wanted to be, I, I don't know, I, it was a very exciting project to be part of. And you there are certain channels through which the play should really run and, and not everyone always, those aren't always self-evident. So um, you sit there and you try to let people explore for themselves as much as you can, especially if you're not directing, but even if you are directing and what do you do in the room? You sort of, you kind of do what you're asked to do. If the actors have questions that nobody else can answer, you answer them. I, I think, the best way to put it is I try to provide a version of the play that I know works because I was able to write it that way. And if, if that is a useful springboard for anybody else who's involved, the actors, the designers, the director, then, then I'm very happy. If there's something that any one of them is doing that really deviates from what I think the play needs to be in the roughest sense, then I, then I am there to you know, flag that and say, I really don't think that's going to lead anywhere useful. Um, so it's kind of a balance between between providing a direction that you think will work for them and also not, you know, not sitting in the backseat telling them every twist and turn that they need to take in order to do it exactly the way you thought of it, because if you're going to do that, you might as well just be a novelist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kenny, uh, I was around for the uh, when you were uh, creating Lobby Hero. I even got to set, sit in on the some of the the uh, writing and rehearsing you the tweaking mm -hmm. sessions. And I remember Glenn Fitzgerald playing that lead character yeah. back then, lovely actor. Yeah. Uh, and he had his you know, and and, and the first time it's, it, you see a play, you know, you don't have a sense of all the possibilities with a character as an yeah. audience member. And I remember him being. I remember the character being kind of uh, that that uh, the, the guy who's in the lobby being kind of flaky, um, not qu kind of goofy almost. Mm -hmm. um, and then I then I saw Michael Sarah play it. Uh, how many years later? Uh, 18, 17 years later, something like, six, that. something like that. And suddenly there was this whole other edge to the character. This kind of guy you suddenly realized was pulling more of the strings in this play than you realized. Mm. Um, and I kind of loved the. That, that feeling that he was unpredictable, you know, it suddenly had danger to it. And again, you know, I love Glenn Fitzgerald. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's just different takes. No. But I just wondered, did you, is that you seeing that and, and, and wanting to see that? Is that Michael Sarah just coming up with this? Is this a collective sort of reimagination of the character? How does that happen? Or, or am I giving too much credit to, you know, these, that, that this, this character is more, is, more, uh, has, is more consistent than I'm uh, let, let, letting on? No, I think it is a collective. I mean, it's a collective endeavor, except that, it, except that the buck stops with the person who has to perform it. Mm. So we can have all the wonderful ideas we, we want, but if the person performing it can't do it, uh, or it's not their best approach, then you're, you're shortchanging everybody. So... Um, but you also, you know, you're working with the personalities of human beings, and it's, it's really no point trying to get Michael Sarah to do Glenn Fitzgerald's performance. He's, he's just not going to be able to, and it's not going to bring out the best in him, or really the best in the play. So, and one of the really exciting things about being a playwright, as opposed to being a filmmaker, is that you, if you have some luck, you get the chance to see, other, you know, more than one great actor interpret the role that you wrote, and. And everybody's interpretation is going to be slightly or, or widely different from what I thought when I was sitting in my apartment by myself, writing the dialogue and imagining, you know, what what the character was like in, in you know, in three dimensional space. So that's really kind of the thrill of it. Um, Do you like hearing your plays over and over again? Can you sit through your own plays? <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a pretty high endurance. <laughs> 
<laughs> sitting to my own place, say, but it does. It, there is. It does have a. There is a limit to it. I'm, I'm going to say right now that I would love to see Michael Sarah in "Hold On to Me, Darling," where he's going to do the Keith knobs. Oh yeah. The part that Keith knobs played. I think it was the agent. Uh, was the, the assistant. Ag- the assistant of yeah, the, uh, the the country music. Yeah, he'd be great in that too. He's just—he's a, a great actor. I mean, the—you know—I'm—I'm I'm lost in admiration for these casts that I get there, or that that get me. Um, They're—they're mm-hmm. uh, they're, just—you know—these—they're wonderful, and it's just wonderful to watch them go. Uh, and they, the fact that they all go in different directions is particularly thrilling. I think I, I feel, and I feel like in Waverly Gallery, I feel like there's not quite enough uh, praise heaped on Joan Allen. Oh my God! In this performance, Bec- and I even, it's, you know, people say, well, you know, I mean, initially I was hearing maybe not, you know, ethnically. Suppo- I mean, people p- apply these notions to what she's supposed to be. Her uh, name is because she's Esther. not Jewish, right? Okay, thank you. But I thought it was a really. I, I think she's kind of the secret weapon of this production. She's incredible. She's just she's. I kind of feel like she's the backbone of the play, yeah. of the production in a way. And that's not to take anything away from anybody no, else. No, no, but there, no. There's a story to her performance that's just very brutal and it's very moving and it's very brave in a way. I mean, I hear about brave performances all the time, but this is a you know character under terrible duress who's not always so nice, but who's deeply loving and and decent at the bottom of it and and to not yield to the desire to be lo- beloved and kind and sweet all the time in a role that really could support that too mm. is 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 very admirable in her and it's just a great characterization it's nothing like what she's like in real life and she's very much i think gives the play an entirely uh well independent but a, a, a whole another spine in a way Absolutely. just watching what she's going through from start to finish right it's wrong to think of this play as just a star turn for you know Elaine May I mean it's the marquee kind of performance because yeah. she's the one the transformation is is on so many levels in that in that way that we that's so gratifying to watch on stage but I think that those supporting performances in this piece oh they're amazing are essential it wouldn't be no you wouldn't you wouldn't really have a play there you'd right. have a, you just have a you know I don't know what you'd have right. you'd have a one woman show and, right, right, you know, right, right. if you're going to have a one woman show you might as well have it with Elaine May <laughs> <laughs> right but so to have Elaine May flanked and right. and acting with these other uh, people is, is is I don't know it's just mm. wonderful mm. I actually I'm curious about the genesis of this was it uh, did did Elaine May express a desire to come back? Did the production approach her? How did that come we, about? We approached it's her. I mean, she's she does all kinds of things. I asked. Yeah. We asked her. I'd asked her a few years ago if she was interested in doing it, and she had seen the play, and she she said, "I love the play, but no, no," because um, she was doing other things, or she wasn't ready to play the part, or I don't know what. But anyway, in a very friendly way, she she passed, and then. Uh, producer, our producer Scott Rudin suggested doing the play as a revival on Broadway I think last year and then we were talking about who we would like and I said well my dream has always been Elaine May so that was who we went to and this time she said yes so mm. it was uh, that was uh, I'd like to mention exciting. another play of yours The Starry Messenger which um, was I think not properly received by many of my colleagues I thought it was one of the most remarkable things that you you've done you directed this yourself i'm i'm wondering if you think it now has the the way things have been going for you on broadway if it now has prospects for revival and would you consider restaging it yourself um yes and yes i think you know i really like that play uh i i thought the production we did at the new group was really turned out well um we were we were going to move the play but our producers our commercial producers for reasons that were obscured to me didn't want to go through with it even though we got enough I think we got enough good notices and enough uh, the audiences liked it well enough that that I think I don't quite know why but then the other thing that happened is I went on to do other things and I didn't give it my attention I didn't give a a move at the time as much attention as I might have Um, the fact is that that (laughs) when that play I read some of the notices and some of them were so laudatory and others were so violently against it that I was sure I'd done something truly great. <laughs> you have just spoken words yes. of great wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I say it in jest, but I'm really kind of serious because it's, I, I am too. I, I, it seemed to me that must be really something special if, if the responses were that uh, diverse. 
Are you saying some of us should have really hated Waverly Gallery? Is that what you're advocating? It, it would have been a, it would have been a little just that much more security for me. Minimum <laughs> 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 realer. It something yeah. something uh, very uh, maybe off-putting about consensus. Consens positive consensus is just fine. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you um, uh, career-wise right now, Kenny? Are you are, what are what are the juggling? What are you juggling at the moment? Uh, I'm juggling. I want. I'm everything. I want to do another film. I want to do another. Write another play. I want to. I would very much like to do a TV show, series of some kind, probably a limited series. And I very much want to get my other plays. Um, back up, uh, whether it's on Broadway or off-Broadway or in some other city. Uh, I'm very keen to do that as well. Things are going pretty well at the moment, and they don't always stay that way, so I'd like to move while I can. Mm. W would you consider directing yourself some of those other plays that you'd like to get bring back? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think, you know, I, uh, it's a, you know, I'm not, sh I don't know if it's necessary in a way, because I, I it, it really depends. I did two, the two plays that I directed, one was Starry Messenger and one was this, my play called Medieval Play, which mm -hmm. was really not well reviewed, but I really liked a lot. I had more fun with that play, I think, than any of the other five all put together, not put together, but in a certain way, that was a very, very f wonderful production experience for me and for the cast. And um, uh, I think that play needs some work, but uh, in a, in a, the only reason I direct theater and I'd like to do more of it because there's a lot more to learn is if I have a really clear idea of what the production is like apart from the performances and the way the scenes are embodied then I think that that's the point at which it's a good idea to direct it myself because otherwise you're just too much of a nag you know you're you're not you're not giving the director enough freedom to do his or her job and if you're going if you're, if your wishes for the for the entire production are that specific you should really try to do it yourself i think there's a tremendous prejudice in the theater circles against and in critical circles against writers directing their own work uh, because they don't have a perspective on it uh, but the truth is that um, nobody has any perspective on anything so why should we be singled out um, and and if you if you have a bent towards directing and you like doing it I don't think it's there's anything wrong to with learning to direct if you even if you are a playwright but which is odd because in many film circles a writer directing their own work is actually seen as a good thing oh it's a it's complete a, tribal prejudice it's a not it's an it's a meaningless um, fashion idea it has no gr basis in the in the I mean, it has no basis in the statistical reality of how many playwrights do a good job with their plays as opposed to how many directors do a good or bad job with other people's plays. It's meaningless. It's just it's just a, I don't know, I, I'm looking for a word like zeitgeist or fashion or, or superstition or, or shamanistic opinion. I don't think there's any, I don't think if you stack them up, you'd find that playwrights are any worse at directing than anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the way, that's the idea in theater, and the idea in film is that writer-directors are exciting and cool. Um, and I don't know if either is true. Well, I have to make a confession before we wrap, which is it is one of my great dreams to direct a regional production of Lobby Hero. So It's uh, all yours. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Listen, what, it has been a real honor to have you in the studio <laughs> with us today. Well, thank you it very much. It truly has. Thank you so very much for making the time to come by and chat with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And now let's take a look at the contents of our three on the aisle mailbox. So the, we have a we have a really good one this week. Uh, uh, there's a, a note from Joe Hederly who writes, uh, this, what, this was touched on a few weeks ago, but I was curious if you could elaborate. Do you reread or edit your reviews with poor quotes in mind? If you really enjoyed a show, do you think about writing a sentence that will be featured, could be used on a billboard or an ad? And if you hated a show, do you make sure nothing you write can be taken out of context? Has someone ever used a quote out of context and, and uh, you have had to ask them to take it down? Hmm. Uh, well, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a, 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 one of the, uh, uh, the pitfalls of being a, a critic. You don't have control of, of, of how your words are used, really, uh, once they uh, uh, come out of your computer and are, in, are published. Uh, so for me, yes, I try not to write a... Uh, a line that uh, uh, that's going to get quoted. I have no. In, I'm happy when I'm quoted uh, uh, faithfully in a review. I think. I mean, in an ad, that's fine with me. But I go out of my way to write so that 
readers can understand what I felt about the show, not so that they can sell the show later. I, I really tr- and I, I sometimes uh, I try to outsmart the uh, the ad uh, people by writing in a way that can't be taken out of context. That they really have a hard time finding that. Yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> let me tell you a story. Uh, uh, this actually happened to me a few years ago when uh, Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park was revived on Broadway. Uh, after that show, which did not get good reviews, opened, uh, the producers ran a quote ad uh, which opened with the following words said in super jumbo, end of the world type, a triumph! <laughs> exclamation point. Beneath, in much smaller print, uh, it said Terry Teachout, the Wall Street Journal. Now, did I really write that? Uh, Well, here's what I really wrote. I wrote, indeed, this Barefoot in the Park is something of a triumph for Scott Elliott, the highbrow director. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed him to be the kind of director who'd be really, really good at staging slapstick. The problem is the play, whose predictable plot and mechanical punchlines may have seemed fresh in 1963, but are now as stale as last month's bagels. (laughs) so when they ran that review uh the week after it came out i called them on it at the end of my drama column i printed what they printed and then what i wrote and then i said sorry guys but you asked for it and they pulled the ad immediately Uh, and nobody's ever tried anything like that on me since then Uh, but uh Uh, No matter how hard you try to make sure that what you're writing can't be taken out of context, uh, you may be up against it with people who are determined to... uh put the moves on you. That's that's happened to me a couple of times. Something some something similar. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember emailing the publicist and saying that's just not cool and they also pulled it. And you have to be proactive. Like nobody else is going to do it but you. Yeah, I would say Terry that in your ca- in the in the case you cited, I think kind of you stepped in it. No offense, but like I mean, I think that you know using that word was uh, you know was was in, inviting someone to like come at me, baby. I'm gonna like uh, you know if they had used something of a triumph, uh, would you have protested that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, see, I'm not so sure that we have that. Uh, that's, I mean, and the fact that we have these uh, these ongoing relationships with um, with these uh, with these uh, publicists and producers, and we have our own legitimate um, uh, audiences, gives us standing to 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 have some control over this. But I'm not so sure that in that case, if they had written something of a triumph, that you, I mean, yes, it was referring to Scott Elliott, uh, but uh, you know, I think that's. That kind of, I probably would have gone, all right, what am I going to do? Which I've done on other cases. Yeah, well, cases. To, to, to put it in big type capital yeah, letters, I, I know, I get the, point. I get your, I, I understand why you I, did I what you did. I pulled the ripcord at that point. No, I get um, why you did what you did. But I, uh, you, know, you know, I had, so wait, So what would you do in this situation? Uh, did I tell you about my situation with um, uh, A Doll's House Part 2? No. No. Uh, there was a commercial that ran for months. With a line that uh, is said by a, uh, by a narrator on on uh, you know by the uh, voiceover person saying, um, "I'd like to sp- talk about nothing but a doll's house part two for the rest of my life." <laughs> that was attributed to me. Oh my god! Well, I just want to tell you the, the, how this happened. It was not in a review. It was not in a spoken podcast. It was in an email to the to the publicist, okay. and that we were is... talking about trying to arrange for me to do an interview with the cast. And I said, I would like, to, in a kidding way, I said, in the email, I'd love to talk about nothing but our Dolls House Part 2. I was so happy that we were arranging it for the rest of my life. It was a, it, it was a throwaway line, and it, it became the line they used okay, in the commercial. Okay, that is so beyond the pale. Well, that sounds but, Well, and I let it go. I just thought, you know, uh, you know and people wrote to me and said, I, I hate you because you said that. I hear that every day when I'm driving home from work. And <laughs> why you put that ridiculous line in my head, I will never forgive you. So, I mean, there are repercussions sometimes at I, the person who... I, I actually had a couple of experiences where I had publicists contact me and said, we'd like to use something from your review, but we need to edit it. Is this okay? And they sent me their copy... So yeah. I could have a look, and and I am fine with that. And sometimes so I, I say yes, Me and too. sometimes I say no. And that is actually exactly the right way to do it. 
Yes. As long as they ask, and as long as the edit doesn't misrepresent what I thought, I'm perfectly willing to be cooperative. And, may, um, and, and, and maybe the last point to be made is, you know, there is, there is some, um, there is some uh, psychic capital for all of us in, in being quoted and having our names on the sides of buildings because it does in some way it is a it is a validation within the mm -hmm. theater community and for people who are you know theater goers of understanding that you're you have a certain amount of respect not just your publication which is really the reason they're quoting you because you're, right. you're part of some larger organization right. but that is that is something that is worth something so uh, well it's not just the community either when my mother was still alive <laughs> and uh, I, honest right. to god if when i got put on a marquee or whatever you know, I would sometimes take a picture of it and send it right. to her because I knew sure. that she'd get a big kick yeah, out indeed. of it. I get a big yes. kick out of it. You know, fair I'm not blasé about this. Right, 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 right. Not at all. And 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 uh, to, to go back very briefly to the first part of the letter, as I mentioned when we discussed this before, I do keep in mind that if I really like a show and I, I want my review to represent that, I will sometimes try to write something that I know can be pulled out cleanly so that my favorable thoughts about the show will be represented accurately. Great. Uh, I think that's perfectly legitimate. And I, I mean, there's a case against it as well. But, uh, you know, when I like a show, I want it to run and I want my review to help it to run. And uh, I, that's part of why I'm doing this. I'm trying to get people to go see good shows pay money to see them and enjoy themselves well, uh, well we hope that's, we hope that's we hope that's answered mr Hetterly's question yes joe that was a terrific question thank you very much for writing a reminder to our listeners you can get in touch with us at three on the aisle at gmail.com to ask a question or make a comment we would love to hear from you and to let our listeners also hear from you now let's take our usual swing around the table and find out what the three of us have been seeing and hearing since our last episode. Peter? Well, uh, Elizabeth and Terry, I wish I had better news from Washington, where I, <laughs> where I recently saw the, uh, the tryout, uh, the pre-Broadway tryout of Beetlejuice, the musical, and I think they got a lot, a lot of work to do. Among the tryout musicals I've seen there over the years, which include Next to Normal and Dear Evan Hansen and uh, Mean Girls, et cetera, et cetera. This one is the one, in, I think, in the most trouble. Uh, it's from a movie that is so endearingly bizarre and, and wonderfully macabre. They've fashioned, uh, under the leadership of a, of a terrific director, Alex Timbers, what I think is a very coarse and crass piece of frantic theater. Uh, it's endless dick jokes, basically, oh, um, oh, and, and scatological stuff, mostly because the uh, they have uh, pumped up the character of Beetlejuice, who really is sort of a, a supporting player in the movie, a feature, an important It's really player. all about the girl. It's really about the girl, and it's about the, the couple who inhabit right. the house. They have been sort of demoted to uh, supporting, to very uh, supporting roles. Frantic, uh, as everyone else in the show is, frantically comic, supposedly, and it just uh, is so dispiriting and so deflating uh, to watch. Uh, and and even the inventiveness. Once you've seen something like Harry Potter um, with magic, you know when you see a Beetlejuice like opening up his palms and little you know flashes go off like in a magic act. That's the that's kind of the level of the uh, and 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 levitation is a you know person on strings being you know raised three feet above the ground. Those oh, are the brother. the wonderful you know. It suddenly feels like where did the money go? This is a twenty million dollar mm. show. So anyway, I hope. As always, when one is reviewing out of town, that that you know, I I hope I've delivered a shock to the system, and maybe that will spur more uh, creativity because it's opening on Broadway in April. But um, at this moment, it doesn't look to me to be a winner. Elizabeth. Whoa. Okay. Well, um, I I'm I, I'd like to talk a, a bit about American Son, uh, which is on Broadway currently, um, which is a play by. Uh, a new playwright yeah. named uh, Christopher Demis Brown, uh, who I hear is a, is a lawyer by uh, by by trade. No, I guess. actually, what he is is he's also the founder of a really promising new theater company in Miami. Uh, uh, right. So he and his wife are they're in the business. Mm. Well, the, the, that show it it is not a good play. The the characters are written in a completely 
very often bizarre. It's very heavy-handed, and it's uh, it's a bad play and a well-meaning play. And it's been getting some flack in some quarters uh, for being a bad play, <laughs> with good intentions. And I, I think it's a tricky show to talk about because uh, it it's it's basically it takes place over like in real time over an hour and a half at night in a uh, in a Florida uh, police station where a um, an African American mother who's played by Kerry Washington is looking for a missing son he didn't come home he's a good boy you know is um, going to West Point or maybe going to West Point and he's not home and she's very worried about what can happen to an African American kid when out driving in his Lexus in Florida um, and She's married to uh, a white FBI agent played by Stephen Pasquale. So I think you can kind of imagine where this is going. Uh, and, it, and it is going there, too. Right. Um, and so I found the play really pretty hackneyed. But at the same time, it is completely impossible to talk about it and think about it without thinking about the reactions in the audience and the way many, many, many audience members are experiencing this play uh, I, I saw it last night, actually, and when I left, there were many people in tears behind me, mm-hmm. and I really don't think you can write flip, derisive, dismissive reviews of that play, of that bad play, when you see the impact it has on some, and it brings up a really interesting conundrum. C- can you, mm-hmm. how do you write and how do you think about a show that's not very good, but that's clearly an impact and means a whole lot to a whole lot of people who take it very seriously. And I, I just find it very hard to be dismissive of a show like that, even if I thought that on a technical level, technical being, you know, like the state, the, the craft of the playwriting, it really falls short. There's so many like howl moments in, in, in that show that it's just, I mean, the good dramaturg may have helped. I, I really don't know. Yeah, I had the same reaction to it that you did, uh, Elizabeth. I was not impressed with it. It felt very predictable and sort of a throwback kind mm-hmm. of to a style. It's very of, pulpy. Very pulpy and kind of like, you know, TV drama um, 101. Mm-hmm. And I think, though, when the, the subject of a play is race, particularly, uh, it touches so close to the bone, especially now, that we do lose our sense of, you know, whether or not the artistic merit of the piece right. is the most vital part of what we're seeing, and whether, and it is sort of impossible not to react to those things, because we all feel them so powerfully. I, I, I would say that if they did, and also, you know, there's like the setting, you have these big stars playing, you know, Kerry Washington, you have Stephen Pasquale, Jeremy Jordan pops up as a, as, as a cop, like, if you, if you Im- imagine this play being done like that mobile unit production of Sweat, right? Imagine that play in that context, and I really think that you're not going to be dismissive of, of the play. That's a very good point. That's uh, a yeah, very good point. I, so there's I that. I wonder whether we're bringing the appropriate frame of reference to bear here. I I read the same reviews that you did. Sarah Holdren really went after it with both barrels, for example, and I see what she was getting at. But I received the play as a commercial play about an issue very similar to other commercial plays that have come to Broadway. Uh, For me, the reference point was 12 Angry Men. It's that kind of uh, middle-brow, issue-driven, straight-from-the-newspapers play, very television-like, and not without merit when judged on those terms. It's not in any way a, a great work of art, but it's clearly forcing audiences to think through these things and uh, when an audience is responding strongly to a seriously intended play uh, I think we do have an obligation to say okay why what is it that they see are they seeing something that we don't are we is there something missing from our reception of the play Uh, you know I mean it's a it's a it's a piece of TV you really know that when you read it and when you look at the descriptions of the Characters but bad TV too, because there's a lot of really much better TV now. Well, that's so. it's a piece of old-fashioned yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, I think that when a when a play isn't as uh, 
it doesn't have the same wallop of real event as real events, then it's not doing a particular service. It's really just sort of r riding the crest of a wave. And I, I would say that any of the stories of what happened either in Ferguson or, and I've seen plays that have sort mm -hmm. of, t you know, other plays that have tried to use those, ex those, uh, uh, those horrible crimes that were committed against uh, black men um, to, to better advantage because this one f felt left me feeling empty. It was meant to f make me feel very powerful about the circumstances. Now, I want to say something that might be a little bit uh, provocative, but you know, I was conscious that this was written by a white man. And I mean, you know, because I, I looked it up. I mean, I went, I purposely did it. And I wondered, you know, I don't know if it, that entered my consciousness. And therefore, I felt I was getting a white perspective, even though I'm sure that you know it's pretty balanced in the play. It feels like it was trying to be so uh, understanding of every character. You know, they gave that they made the uh, anyway. Without getting into the to the weeds about this, mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of I, I just didn't find it a compelling evening, even though other people around yeah. me did. Well, I'm going to take us in a radically different direction, and I'm going to praise not a show, but a new CD. Uh, it's by Melissa Urico. It's called Sondheim Sublime. It's just out from Ghostlight Records, uh, which, as you all know, specializes in uh, today's original cast albums. Now, theatergoers in New York know Melissa Urico as one of the most talented musical comedy performers we've got. But her career was sidetracked when a vocal cord hemorrhage forced her to drop out of Classic Stage Company's 2013 revival of Passion, which really should have made her a Broadway star. And the good news is that she recovered completely and that she now sounds better than ever. And this new collection of 15 Sondheim songs just doesn't leave any doubt of that. The singing is vocally gorgeous, it's musically sensitive, and it's intelligent. I mean, without being in any way obvious about it, Arico sings like an actor. Every twist and turn in those lyrics lands with perfect precision. I've heard a lot of Sondheim performances on record. I have never in my life heard a better Stephen Sondheim recital album. And I can't possibly recommend this one strongly enough. It is the real thing. That is a very high praise. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, we, we have to end this. It's so wonderful to be with you, gentlemen. I don't want it to end. Aww. It's like the best rom-com ever. Been, it's uh. been fun. It's been fun today. It really has. <laughs> Um, so, okay, we should end this. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Peter Marks. And I am Terry Teachout. You have been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is, insert appropriate adjective here, Kirby Pate. <laughs> and you can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle and write to us at threeontheisle at gmail.com. Both of them are spelled out. And please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And please don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. We will be with you again soon on the Isle.